Thanks for tuning in to Why Life Science, a podcast produced by the Bean Life Science Museum at Brigham Young University. I'm Katie Knight. And I'm Austin Lambert. Our mission here at the Bean Museum is to inspire wonder and reverence for our living planet. So with this podcast, we are here to bring you stories and interviews about life science research and projects going on in the College of Life Sciences at BYU and in the local community. Visit our website, mlbean.byu.edu, for more information and to access notes from each episode. Well, welcome to Why Life Science podcast. Today we're going to be interviewing Josh Day and Meryl Webb. Uh, We welcome Josh back. And today we're going to be talking about birding. Uh, but maybe we'll start just with introductions. Merrill, do, do you want to start? Okay. Merrill Webb grew up in St. George, southern Utah, and graduated from BYU uh, after going to Dixie College, and then taught school at Provo High School for 31 years. That's how I know him. <laughs> he was my teacher. <laughs> and then I came up here to BYU and worked with student teachers for a couple of years, and then I finished up at a charter school called UCAS which is on the uh, UVU campus. What did you teach? Well, at Provo High School, I taught, my last six years, I taught three classes of physiology, two classes of human biology, and one class of zoology. And before that, I had taught AP biology and also a semester of ecology and a semester of genetics. And then when I came up here, I taught human biology to non-majors, then when I went to UCAS, I taught college biology for students who were all juniors and getting college credit for it. And his classes are no joke. I took physiology as a sophomore, and it, they were as hard as my college classes. <laughs> it was hard. You're definitely well qualified to be on a life science podcast then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, Josh, I'm sure our listeners are familiar with your name, and, and they've heard you as a host on this podcast, but now you're a guest. Uh, do you want to give just an introduction then? I obviously used to work here at the Bean Museum. I uh, worked here for a few years as an undergraduate student, and then during my master's program here at BYU, I also did some work, or I did, I did part of my research in the museum identifying insects, um, so I spent a lot of time up in the insect collection, and then after I graduated from my master's, worked here again with Katie in the education department and then worked here for a couple of years until I just left a couple months ago to pursue a PhD program at Utah State in ecology. So that's what I'm doing right now. So the last couple of months I've been doing some field work and jumping back into research, which has been fun. And uh, what's the focus of your project for your PhD? Yeah, so the, the focus of my PhD project is sagebrush. Um, in particular, there's some areas down um, near Moab, near Canyon, that's National Park, which is the southern end of sagebrush's range. Um, and there's some areas where sagebrush has been historically and is now dying off. And so part of my job is to try to figure out why. We should have a whole episode just on that research. Yeah, we'll have you back. <laughs> yeah. I say, I've spent a lot of time in sagebrush fields as well, doing soil uh, collection and soil sampling. So, But today we're going to be talking about birding. One of you wants to tackle the question just first, what is birding? You can separate it into two different categories. You can call it bird watching, where you're kind of sedentary, let the birds come to you. Or you can call it birding, where you chase birds. 
people usually start out just looking at birds in their yards and maybe watching a bird feeder. And I did none of that. (laughs) (laughs) You're a birder. (laughs) A true birder. (laughs) You know, I had to come to BYU to find out that there were a lot of unique birds in southwestern Utah. Yeah, that's the place to go. Yeah, and I didn't even realize that when I was getting into birding. But I've been birding a long time, and so uh, a serious birder keeps track of what they see with checklists. And I have a checklist for almost everything, like a life list and a county list and a state list and United States list. So it's been part of me to chase birds. So I go looking for them. So that's, to me, that's what birding is. Yeah, he'll say something like, oh, I haven't gotten this particular owl in this county yet this year. And he'll go look (laughs) for it. (laughs) So I'm I'm a lister. And I have to tell you that my first list goes back to 1961 when I was a freshman at Dixie College. I took an ornithology class without the prerequisite of biology because I convinced the teacher that I knew my birds. (laughs) Probably better than the teacher. (laughs) He was an entomologist mostly, and so when we'd go on field trips, local field trips, he would sometimes ask me where a good place to go was. I know that happened a couple of times. I got to see that there were a lot of pretty neat birds down along the river. And so you started your first list at Dixie College. Is that when you consider yourself started birding as well, or what was your first experience birding? I used to shoot them with a BB gun. My dad gave me a BB gun when I was seven or eight years old, and he told me not to shoot certain birds, not necessarily because they were protected, but because he liked them. So I wasn't supposed to shoot uh, something like a robin, or what he called a catbird, which I later found out was a kingbird, and not to shoot a uh, butcher bird, which I found out later was a loggerhead shrike. <laughs> but he had his own names for some of the birds, and I, I grew up liking, looking at birds. I remember hearing a mockingbird sing in an elm tree right outside my bedroom window early in the morning, and that was really a neat experience. We had encyclopedia at home called Collier's, and there were pictures of birds that I like to look at. And I thought, wow, you know, I'd love to see those, like a scarlet tanager. And uh, my favorite at that point was a Blackburnian warbler, both of them totally eastern birds. Didn't see those until quite a bit later in my birding career. So I don't know if that answers your question. Wasn't there a story about the field guide your mom bought you? Oh, that's correct. Yeah, so um, when I quit shooting them, um, I remember going into a store in St. George, and I saw this field guide, and it was called Peterson's Guide to Western Birds. I don't know if you've ever heard of Roger Torrey Peterson, but he was the very best one to put out field guides. Talked to my mother. She bought it for me. I was hooked. Gave up the BB gun for birding and then got a pair of binoculars, and that made a whole lot of difference. And ever since then, probably when I was 14 or 15 years old, I've been watching them ever since. And I'm 79, so that's a long time to be keeping lists. And uh, what about you, Josh? You can add anything to the definition of of what is birding, or we'd just love to hear uh, how you got into birding. Yeah, I, I, I think he gave a really great definition. I guess about me getting into birding. So I grew up in Central California, and there's there are lots of farms all around. So we, we were always driving through the middle of farm country to go visit a relative or wherever. And 
my family would always point out cranes. They'd always say, they'd always call out, oh, crane, or on the side of the road, like, like people with cows or horses, right? And they're like, crane. And for years, I never saw them. Everybody else in my family was like, oh, yeah, there it is. And I never, I like had no idea what they were looking at. Like I could never see what they were seeing. Come to find out later, it's actually cattle egrets is what they were looking at. But um, you, so not you as actually a kid, cranes. Kid, you were like, that's not a crane. No, I, I, I didn't even know. Like I wasn't even seeing the birds at all, right? Uh, and see. and they're fairly obvious. So these little white birds that are sitting out in the middle of the fields, right? Uh, but for whatever reason, I couldn't see them. I just never did for years. And so I, I think that part of that is like that. There's that motivation I think for me once I started figuring it out that I had like years to catch up on <laughs> from all my family seeing these birds and I couldn't. But I, I think what really got me started was in, it was either in first or second grade, we had a local wildlife rescue come to the school and bring a few animals. Like I think they brought a raccoon and I, I don't even remember what all the other animals were, but the one that really sticks out to me was they had a turkey vulture. And so they were showing us this turkey vulture and they had it on a glove. And um, I just remember being so impressed by the size of it, right? And just... Just the way it looked, right? They're a really cool-looking bird, and you got to be up so close to it as a as a little kid. It was just really cool. But then the really cool thing that they did was they taught us how to identify a turkey vulture. So with the turkey vulture on their glove, you know, they had it open its wings, and so they showed us like the the silver back edge of the wing, and then they showed they taught us what to look for in the way that they fly, and that stuck with me. And then. So from then on, I, I was constantly looking for turkey vultures. Anytime I'd see a soaring bird, I was looking to see if it was a turkey vulture or not because I knew how to tell. And then from there, I think it spread from seeing, you know, seeing soaring raptors and I could tell whether it was a turkey vulture or not. But when it wasn't a turkey vulture, then I was curious to know what it was. Um, and in sixth grade, I had a teacher who had a field guide and I would check that out. And I I read the whole field guide probably a couple of times just because I thought it was so cool, but it was still a long time before I actually got into what I would call birding. It was really passive up until actually until I started working here at the bean museum. And do you keep lists as well? I am a lot more passive about it, but when I do go birding, I do keep lists. It's really nice now to be using eBird, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later. But with an app on my phone, I can just keep track of all the birds that I see while I'm out, whether it's for just a short period of time or whether I'm hiking. And it uses GPS, so it knows which birds should be there at this time of year and gives you hints and things, what it could be. Yeah, so I, I do keep lists now a lot more than I used to. One of the things that is really impressive about Mr. Webb, I call him Mr. Webb because he was my teacher, is his ability to recognize calls. I've been on some bird surveys with him, and we'll go in the middle of the night almost. It's like 4 in the morning, and he can recognize them in the dark, Just and I'm writing down the, the names of the birds while he's hearing them. Um, and I was thinking as Josh was talking about these apps and the resources that we have is that you didn't have those back then. You were learning these calls records, or how did you do it? Records. Speaking of that, we I'd kind of forgotten that at the beginning we wanted to play a bird call on here. Oh. Let the listeners have a chance to see if they recognize this one. I know everybody in the room knows what it is, <laughs> but it's 
It's probably one of my favorite birds. And Mr. Webb taught us that you recognize that bird with the song, St. George, Pretty Little Town. <laughs> and you could you could jump in with any town, but he's from St. George, so that's how, how we learned it. A western meadowlark. That's right. Well, I was going to say, I did not know that bird, because oh. I think I'm the only one here that is not, uh, whether an active or passive birder, <laughs> I would consider myself a pre-beginner. <laughs> yeah, we're going to convert you by the end of this. <laughs> I think that's uh, well on its way to happening. Because, Katie, you go birding as well? Yes, yeah. And do you keep lists? I do, yep. So I guess one of my biggest questions then, when it comes to identifying birds, you have tools like the field guides that have been referenced, and it sounds like there's several different types of guides, even an app on your phone. Uh, how long did it take you, Meryl, to to get good at identifying birds? Do you still use your field guide, or can you identify nearly any bird you see? Depends on where I am. That's kind of the challenge in going birding, is to be able to recognize the birds and to kind of look for the one that you haven't seen before. That's pretty exciting. If you can see a bird that you've maybe seen the picture of and... I know where in the field guide to look for it now. He knows all the birds. <laughs> I, don't, I know most of them in Utah. Let's put it that way. But uh, and in the Western United States, I'm I'm fairly certain. But in the East, there's a lot more warblers there, and um, I can probably look them up on a field guide. You know, in a field guide. But I I have a really hard time recognizing the songs of Eastern warblers. Yeah, it's difficult for me to do them here. I mean, something like the Western Meadowlark or a Killdeer or a Red-winged Blackbird, those ones are really easy to tell, but a lot of them are hard. And what about you, Josh? Since you've been getting more into it uh, recently, you haven't been doing it quite as long, how's your bird identification? Ooh, um, not nearly as good as Merrill's, but that's part of what, to me, is attractive about birding is that no matter how long you've been doing it, you can always get better because there are so many birds. The crazy things about the birds is they don't like to sit still for you when you're looking at them. So they're like, especially the little ones, right? They're they're like flitting in and out of cover and they don't hold still for very long in an open area where you can see them. And then by the time you get your binoculars on them to get a good look, they're gone, right? So it's it's a real challenge. And then the, taking that to the next level, learning the songs, there's always something to learn, right? There's always something to get better at. I do pretty well with most of the really common birds here, but there are a few groups of birds where um, I still have a lot of work to do. Sparrows in particular, that's something I've been trying to work on a little bit is my sparrow identification um, and shorebirds. We get a lot of different shorebirds, and we get some that are pretty rare, and so it's some, it's sometimes that can be really hard to tell. But yeah, then there are other groups that I'm a little bit more confident in. Raptors. He knows he knows raptors really well. Well, getting there. <laughs> if you ever get to the point where you feel like you know them all, then you're in bad trouble. Yeah. Then why, <laughs> then why, then why keep going, right? Because it's always a challenge to see something and, and recognize it. And it's, it's kind of like being a detective. When you look at something, you try and figure out what it is. So that's what's fun about birding. You mentioned shorebirds. About 20, oh, I don't know, 20, 15 years ago, I used to just hang up my binoculars during the fall migration because I could not identify shorebirds after they had molted out of the breeding plumage and they were all just about the same color. 
and you had to go by leg color and uh they mostly have mud size. on them <laughs> it was really hard and i just i wasn't up to the challenge and finally uh, i i went with a birder who was really good and that's another thing i should suggest is go with people who are better than you are and that's the way you learn because i remember going with this kid that was a graduate student at utah state he was from north carolina and he knew the gulls and the shorebirds and i didn't and so I would go with him and gradually got more confident. But gulls, you know, they'll go through three or four years of different plumages. Shorebirds will molt every year. Ducks will molt twice a year. So not only do you have to recognize them in breeding plumage, but you've got to be able to recognize them after they've molted. Recognizing males versus females because yeah, they're usually right. sexually dimorphic. So that's another layer too. Is sometimes the males are easy to recognize because they're so bright and colorful, but then the females, like they're so drab that some it can be really hard to tell them apart, tell what it is. Well, that's what Josh and I did. We took your advice, and we've been going with you because we want to go get better at birding. So he said, "Let's go with Merrill as oh. often as we can." <laughs> it's been fun. Yeah, it has actually. been fun. During the COVID thing, yeah, getting out, yeah, and having confidence that we weren't going to infect each other, and yep, and go. We went what three or four times, as I recall. I'd yeah. say at least, yeah, something like and that. And that was at fun. You it know, was to do that. I appreciate you asking me to go. Well, so you mentioned that going with someone who's better than you is is a good way to yes to get better at birding and and I guess also catch the vision. You kind of have the fun. Of, of being able to recognize birds rather than just looking at them and having no idea what kind of bird it is. So say for someone like me who doesn't have the experience of, of birding, I'm probably not good at identifying birds or any of our listeners who might be in a similar situation. What are other tips that you have for how to get started? Okay, binoculars are a must. Field guide would certainly be recommended. And then go with a person, another person. And if there's a birding group in your vicinity, find out when they go on their weekly trips or, or whenever and go with them. There's always usually a really good leader that can help you recognize them by, by voice and by visual. Birding can be like kind of a social thing. When you go with other people, it's just kind of, it's kind of fun you know, to go with other people. I remember going with almost always some other older person when I was learning. One of them was a religion professor here at BYU. One was a retired doctor, and they would just call me and say, let's go birding. Sometimes it was all day long. Sometimes it was just a few hours. But that's the way I learned, and it was fun. I think I should get my uh, binoculars out, dust them off, and go with, uh, go go. with all of you. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Sounds like I've met the right people to, to start getting into birding. Wouldn't you agree, Josh, that you've got to have those? Oh, no question. There are things you can do to get better at birding, uh, like outside of even being able to walk around and look at birds. Like the field guide is, I mean, for me, that was so, so important. That was my introduction to birding was reading the field guide. I didn't even know what real birding was until I got into college and went with Merrill Webb with the Bean Museum. But yeah, a, a field guide, and there are some that are free so there, there's some apps now like merlin which is done by the cornell lab of ornithology that's a free app you can get on your phone and it's and it's a field guide 
There are a few others that you could pay for that that are apps, and then there are plenty of books. There are a few like the Sibley's or Peterson's Field Guides, and some are really general. So you can get them for like birds of North America. You can get them birds of like Western North America or Eastern North America, or like you can get field guides that are specific to region. So I I think that a field guide is absolutely a must, and binoculars. The birds don't like to sit still, and they don't like you to be that close most of the time, especially when they're little. Some of the, the field marks that you're trying to identify them by are so small that, yeah, without binoculars, you're always going to be second-guessing yourself. Let me add something to that. There's another level besides the binoculars, and that's listening, okay? I mean, when you're out looking at a bird, you're going to be listening to it call, or sing. And so I taught a birding by ear class for about 10 years for the Great Salt Lake Bird Festival. And this one time I thought, okay, let's try something different. So we were doing the, I was work, I worked on about nine or 10 species up in Farmington, got them so that they could identify them from the recording that I played. And then I says, okay, we're going to walk around now, but you're going to leave your binoculars behind. <laughs> and you should have seen the looks on their faces. You know, when you hear a bird, you, you have this instinctive reaction to bring your binoculars up, you know. And instead, they had to listen. And so I'm going to talk about Go how ahead. I got better at, at birding by ear. I got the field guide for Peterson's, and they had three records that went with that field guide. And I would listen to those records and learn the calls, especially the birds to the western United States because I knew that's where I was going to be. So I got those down pretty well. When I say pretty well, I was all right. But then I got a job with the Forest Service doing breeding bird surveys. And that required me to be able to recognize the calls in the dark, in the forest. Because I, I would start all my surveys at about 5.20, 5.30 in the morning at daybreak. And if you've ever been out about that time, you hear what's called the birders' chorus. I mean, it's, it's so neat because all the birds are singing. And you've got to be able to distinguish not only the species of bird, but how many at each site that you do. And that's where I got better at birding. Because I did those routes for the Forest Service for 17 years. And whenever I would hear a bird that I didn't know, I'd go home and put it on the record. We didn't have the calls on the apps like we do now. I'd go home and try and put it on the record. And then, because I didn't know which one it was, I had a general idea. And by the time you listened to a whole bunch of other calls, you forgot (laughs) what the original one sounded like. I was going to say, that's really hard. (laughs) (laughs) So it was challenging. But I got better and better as I went along. I mean, I went birding this morning. I went up Pablo Creek Canyon, and I just left my binoculars in the car, and I just listened. I got 17 species without even pulling out my binoculars. And so that's another level. I think people hear, but they don't listen. And there's a big difference. And you can, you've got the records, you got tapes. They went from records to tapes and now to the, um, to the apps. And Audubon has a really good app that you can pull up the bird calls and you can listen to them and learn them that way. 
Yeah, sometimes that's the only thing you'll get from them, right? Sometimes you'll never see them, yeah. but the only thing you get is you hear them. So last night I was out in the backyard <coughs> after dark just chatting with my parents and my brother and my sister-in-law we were all in the backyard just talking. And there's a western screech owl really? over on the other side of the house. Is like <laughs> just, you know, just it couldn't have been more than 100 yards away, right? And I have everybody stop talking. Did you guys hear that? Yeah. And it's really, you know, it's faint and they're listening for it, explaining what it is. And I only recognized it because I knew, I knew it, right? It was a call that I knew it, but nobody else... My parents and my my brother and sister in law they had no idea what it was, and they were they had no clue that it was even calling. Yeah, they might not even have heard it. Right? Yeah, they probably they didn't even notice it. Yeah, you have to just, learn how to listen. You have to learn how to listen, but that's the thing about it; it gets in your blood, and it yeah, then you can't ignore it. That's an important skill to get for no matter what you're doing is just acute observation, being able to to carefully observe what's going on around you. As we're talking about birding, I'm excited. I want to go out and do it even though I know that I won't be able to identify everything right off the bat, but the learning is interesting to me. I'm excited to, to learn more and, and to be able to observe carefully, not just with my eyes, but also to try and, and hear and really listen to the birds around me. And really that goes for anything that we talk about on for this sure. podcast too. I, I think generally people enjoy walking outside, stepping out in the morning or whatever and hearing all the birds singing. But you really appreciate it a lot more when you can tell which birds are singing, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. what species they are. It's called a dawn chorus. That's what I forgot to I, I I called it wrong, but I usually just call it my camping alarm clock. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this morning, um, Austin was telling us that he he saw a blackbird with a yellow head, and we said that's probably a yellow-headed <laughs> blackbird. <laughs> so you're you're well on your way. You're Turns out I'm better at bird ID than I <laughs> yeah. than I thought. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Josh, you were talking a little bit about how it's benefited your life, just being able to recognize the birds that are around you when you hear them to know what they actually are. Maybe we can talk about that just for each of you. How has birding uh, enriched your life? I mean, Meryl, you've been doing it for a, for a long time. What benefit has it, has it brought to your life? It's my hobby. It's relaxing. Challenging. And uh, when I can go birding with other people, it's kind of development of camaraderie. I'm a learner, and I've learned a lot about nature, about the environment and ecology by going birding. Birding, I think, has really opened up. It, it really opened up my eyes to how big the world was. I, th- I think that's a really grand way of putting it, I think. But starting to recognize the different types of birds birds are really diverse they're not as diverse as a lot of other groups of animals like insects for example but relatively they're they're pretty diverse or they're a lot more diverse than people than most people think they are until you start noticing until you can start to pick them apart and identify them it just opens up a whole new world that's been around you your entire life that you didn't even know existed you start to realize wow, there are a lot of species of birds. Like, there are a lot of them around me, and they're all shapes and sizes. They have all these different songs and calls. And they're colorful, and they're beautiful. Yeah, they, and they, they are. They're beautiful. They're, they're fun to watch. They do funny little things. And for me, that's led beyond that even to why I'm an ecologist, right? That's to why I'm pursuing a PhD in ecology right now, right, is, is because it just it changed my perspective of the world around me. 
I've really just been birding casually while I worked here at the museum, organizing these field trips that Mr. Webb would take groups on. But then when the pandemic came and we couldn't do anything, we were kind of locked down. I got out and in my car and just started driving around and birding on my own. I realized how much I missed it and how much joy it brought me just by myself. I mean, we've talked about how social it can be, but it can also be almost a spiritual experience. And I remember when I first started going, seeing like a, an American avocet or a black neck stilt or a bald eagle and, and just being like, wait, are these birds supposed to be here? Are they, are they always here? They were so cool to me. And, and they're actually pretty common and they're here every year. They're just birds that I hadn't recognized or observed before because I just wasn't looking like we talked about. But it's brought me a lot of just happiness. It's thrilling to see one of those birds. I almost get chills sometimes when I see a certain species and it's just really exciting. I'd like to add something else that I forgot while Katie was talking. Uh, about, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years ago, I bought my wife a pair of binoculars. Before that, she had just a, a really, I gave her a plastic pair that's probably equivalent to getting it out of boxes, Cracker Jacks, you know, <laughs> and it just wasn't, didn't do her any good. But I bought her a pair of Nikons for her either Mother's Day or, or birthday, I don't remember which. And she got so that she liked to look at birds with the binoculars. Well, this last year, year and a half, she would say, uh, why don't we go birding? And for her to do that was really unusual because she's just kind of been tolerating my going out all the time, you know. But she wanted to get out of the house too. And and so we would go. And she got better at seeing the birds than I did. She would say, okay, look over there. There's that one. I was driving for one thing, you know. So she was a spotter kind of, but she got a lot of enjoyment out of it and seeing her get excited about it was satisfying to me. And during this COVID thing, I think a lot of people found that watching birds was really relaxing and educational, and they could watch it from their house. They could watch feeders, uh, and it it really helped a lot of people get through it. I mean, even just thinking about being able to identify birds, it, it brings that sense of excitement but also being out in nature, at least for me, I, I'm a pretty avid camper and, and hiker. And being out in nature, that, that's always something that is relaxing. And more than just being relaxing, like I'm not doing anything, usually I'm hiking and expending energy. But at the same time, there's a calm uh, being out in nature. I think it helps connect with God. And, and like Josh was saying, being able to identify and recognize the diversity in the world around us whether it's plant species. I know some people that can ID more than 100 types of grasses or there's endless numbers of species of birds, of, of insects, of, of all these creations around us. And I think it brings appreciation for, for what we've been given uh, with a beautiful earth that we live on. Well, maybe we can um, shift now a little bit and talk about citizen science and conservation. What opportunities are there within this birding community for participating in citizen science? Birds can be a really great indicator of ecosystem health or, or of habitat health, right? And part of the reason for that is because birds are so mobile because they, 
they can fly, they are easily able to say, I want to go to this place or I don't want to be here. Right. So, so they are quick to respond to ecosystem change because they can either go to it or leave it fairly easily. They can be a yardstick, if you will, uh, for changes that are happening. They're an indicator. They're the most visible indicator. I mean, they're big. And, and Josh mentioned the importance of habitat. And that's one of the things that's really happening now to, that's affecting bird populations is the loss of habitat due to a number of things, especially in the tropics where deforestation is having an effect, in the boreal forest up in Canada where the forests are being cleared, loss of habitat here in Utah due to clearing of land and building of houses. All of this has a negative impact on birds. And recently, last year, as a matter of fact, Cornell Lab of Ornithology published in their magazine the fact that we have lost about 2.5 billion birds in the last 15 years. And that's affecting all birds across the spectrum. And And those factors that I just mentioned, loss of habitat, is probably the most important. Pesticides is another when you talk about citizen science, I think we all need to get involved. We need to contribute to various birding organizations that can use the money to help save habitat. We can do surveys. Uh, we can keep track of the birds. I know Cornell Lab, they have what they call Project Feeder Watch for people who, during the winter, they just want to keep track of birds that come to their feeders. And you can report those over a period of, I don't know, four or five months. And every little bit helps. We need to do our part. We need to belong to some kind of conservation organization. I know there are people that say, oh, we just need to go out and look at birds. If you lose the habitat, you lose the opportunity to look at birds. There are organizations out there that you can belong to that will utilize your annual dues for the benefit of the birds. And Cornell Lab of Ornithology is one of them. American Birding Association is another one. Uh, The American Bird Conservation, ABC. I've come to the conclusion that, you know, I can't do a lot, but what I can do, I will do. And that's doing bird surveys and contributing to a couple of organizations that I get magazines from, I learn from, and they, oh, another one is the Nature Conservancy. And they have purchased property right here in Utah that has enabled birders to, has enabled farmers and cattlemen and and riparian areas to be conserved. And that's really important too. I'm not going to brag on this, but I belong to all three of them just because I think it's really important. The Nature Conservancy does some here locally on a state level. The other two on an international level. And all those I've been able to take advantage of. And so I know that it's really important to do your part. And I think there's some things that we can do to do citizen science. We can make windows safer by putting uh, decals up in the windows. We can keep our pet cats inside 
because they kill birds. We can use native plants. We can avoid pesticides. And we can use less plastic. All of those are things that we individually can do. eBird is another way um, to turn your hobby into data. And Josh mentioned earlier, there's an app you can just put in the birds that you see. But you were doing lists long before eBird was around. And, you know, you enter that data and then they have that population data over time. And they can see kind of what Josh was talking about, how the birds are indicators. They can see where they've moved and and then you know, go back and say, why aren't the birds there anymore? What's right. going on? And these organizations can come in and do some work to help fix issues. So eBird is a an online database that's run by the, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. When you're logged in, you can start making lists anytime you go out. So if you do it on your phone, it records GPS locations. So it records the where you start, where you end, it records the track that you go, but you keep the list in the app of which species and how many of each. And then all of that just, it gets, that's just more data that's added to the database. So now they've got millions and millions of data points that have been collected by birders all over the world now. It's been used to track migration you can tell when birds are first showing up in an area because they start showing up on people's lists. It tells us so much. And every time you make a list on eBird of birds that you see, no matter what they are, even if they're just really common ones, it's more data and it, it just adds to the body of knowledge that we have available to then help us make decisions, make management decisions. And it's also kind of nice because they keep track of all the birds for you. So I can go and see... How many birds I are on my life list, and in which year, right. and where where did I see them? And it's kind of a personal tool too. Yeah, and it's it's free to use, and it helps science, and it's awesome. I was gonna say it's so accessible. It's something easy that that a lot of people can get out and do, and it does end up making a big difference as it contributes to both your own list, but also the scientific community as a whole. Another thing that's kind of fun is this summer I got my nephews ages 14 to 10 in, into birding. <laughs> I just took them out with me, and Josh would come, and we've been once with Merrill. And I, sh- I got them all eBird accounts and showed them how to enter their birds. But they like to go on there on their own and browse and just see, you know, where are the birds, and they like to see who are the top birders. There's this guy on there named George Webb, and they're like, is that is that Mr. Webb? <laughs> <laughs> and th- there's like these heroes. It's just a lot of fun, and it's a way to connect people. In general, this hobby is one that not only connects you to the natural world and to other people, but um, we've talked a little bit about it, but it makes you a better observer, which can enrich your life in many ways. If you observe birds and nature, you're going to be more empathetic to other people in their life and what's going on. You're just going to be, I don't know, I don't want to get too spiritual, but you'll be more like Christ because he recognized when people were having a hard time and could be empathetic. Right? It's one sparrow sold for five farthings and then two for three, but not one of them falls without Christ knowing, right? That's that's a scripture. But you guys mentioned earlier, birding can be somewhat of a spiritual experience um, in in many ways. Um, 
But uh, yeah, it's a, a good way, thought, Katie. Way to appreciate God's creations, right? Oh, we kind of skipped over it, but one of the questions Austin wrote was, what is your favorite bird? And I really want to hear how Mr. Webb answers this one. Because <laughs> it's almost like, what, who's your favorite kid, right? <laughs> you can't pick. I've asked him this question before. <laughs> well, when I was early as a birder, I wanted to see a vermilion flycatcher because I thought it was so neat looking. And so that would have had to have been my favorite bird in the United States because I wanted to see it. And I finally saw it down at Lytle's Ranch. And that was a banner day for me, because after looking for it for a number of years and and having people tell me that I had just missed it, you know, oh, you should have been here last week, or you should have seen it yesterday. And that really got to me, you know. So I finally got the Vermilion Flycatcher, and it was as beautiful (laughs) as I had expected. But... Now that I've gone to other countries birding, uh, I've seen a lot of other really neat birds, both colorful and size and behavior, and a whole bunch of them are running through my mind right now, and I don't think I can pick a favorite bird. Every time I go to a a new country to go birding, I have certain birds that are my target birds that I want to see. Whether or not they're my favorite is debatable, but they're on my list to find, and that's why I go, you know. When I went to uh, Africa, went to uh, Tanzania and Kenya, there were some birds there that I wanted to see that aren't in South America or the United States. For example, the ostrich, you know. Mm. The secretary bird. That was a bird I really wanted to see, you know. And the sunbirds that are in Africa that take the place of hummingbirds, because hummingbirds are only in the Western Hemisphere. Oh, in South America, I wanted to see the the Quetzal, you know, because that was the one that the Aztecs or the Incas thought was such a neat bird. And I had a guide that went with us, and I finally saw it. And it's as beautiful as you hear. So growing up, it would have to be the Mockingbird. Like I mentioned how I enjoyed hearing that sing. And I still like to hear it. I just got off the Mississippi River last week. We, we took a tour down, and the, the mockingbirds spread all over the United States. And it was mimicking birds in the east. Wow. <laughs> it wasn't mimicking any of the birds in the west, just the birds in the east. And, and so my wife said, oh, I just heard a cardinal. And I said, <laughs> careful. <laughs> you know, I'll bet you if we keep listening, there will be others that will follow. And sure enough. It left the cardinal and went to the tufted titmouse and some others. You know, it's kind of interesting how the mockingbirds will will mimic the birds that are in their area. And so you got to like the mockingbird, you know. It's just a neat bird. He changed it. So I asked him this question a few years ago, and his answer was, whichever bird I'm looking at. Yeah, well. <laughs> except, I think he said, except for starlings. Yeah. <laughs> I have, I have modified it. <laughs> That's when you can get your BB gun out again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's a great answer. Well, we'll have to link uh, either pictures or a Wikipedia page to each of these birds in the show notes for those oh. that don't know what they look like. And then we can also link some of these tools, links to things like eBird and, and some of the field guides. It's interesting. As you get into birding and you learn more of these birds and you see more of them, you get to have a lot of favorites. 
Because you'll have a favorite <coughs> duck, and you'll have a favorite songbird, and you have a favorite shorebird, and you have a favorite raptor, and you have, you know, you'll have favorites in each of these groups or a favorite in the area. But they're all so cool in so many different ways. They're all like, just whether it's yeah behavior or color or song, they're all so unique and so cool that you get That's all true. these different favorites for all these different reasons, and yep. it's so hard to pick yeah. just one. Before we quit, I need to mention one more thing. For people who might be interested in finding out where to go to look for birds in Utah, for example, there is a, a website. It's called utahbirds.org. And the webmaster there has put together a very comprehensive list of birds in all the counties. There are 29 counties in Utah, and there are certain really good places in each of those counties to go. Like, for example, if you wanted to go to Schofield Reservoir in Carbon County, first of all, it's giving you directions on how to get there, and when you get there, certain birds to look for. So it's really helpful to people who are just starting out to go to that website and use that as a guide to where to go, what kind of habitat it is, and what to look for. Just a side note, that webmaster, Milton Moody, on Facebook posted, if you want to see the band-tailed pigeons, come on over. So I took my nephews over, and he hosted us for a little while, and we saw him. Yeah, he gets really excited about those band-tailed pigeons. He's been watching them for a number of years. Well, and if you also want to know Merrill's uh, top 20 birding places in Utah, uh, that's also on the website. Yeah, thanks. I listed that as the top places to go before you die. <laughs> as you can tell, we could probably go on for a long time talking about birds. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Merrill. Uh, a lot of takeaways, a lot of simple things that people can do to, to get involved, contribute both to the scientific community and to themselves, just to be able to increase observational skills. Birding is a lot more than just looking at birds and sitting around. It's chasing them. It's, it's being able to ID them and list them, and, and it contributes to so many parts of life. So thank you so much for, for joining us on uh, the Wildlife Science Podcast. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for having yeah, us. Yeah, it's been great. Let's go birding. <laughs>